Well, please take your Bible in hand and turn back again to the wonderful letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful letter together. Blood is thicker than water, some say. The sentiment behind that statement, of course, is that family comes first above all other human relationships. But the truth is, in this fallen world, every family has at least one black sheep. And if you're struggling this morning to identify who that might be in your family tree, well, it could be you. Some of you come from large families with many siblings, and so you've maybe experienced a scenario like this where a a close family friend that knows your family well comes up to you and says, you know, you remind me so much of your brother or of your sister. But in order to know whether or not they mean that as a compliment or an insult, you have to follow up and say, which one? Which one of my brothers are you referring to? If you've had that experience, then you know that while blood may be thicker than water, family relationships in a fallen world are difficult. In fact, since the fall, sin has riddled family life. The the son of Adam and Eve being murdered by his own brother in Genesis chapter 4. And of course, that kind of hostility and shameful behavior has unfortunately continued on even into our time today. Many families have been so embarrassed by the public brazen sins of their relatives that they refuse to even speak of them. They don't want to be identified with them, and they don't want others to paint them with the same brush, and so they refuse to even speak of them. On the other side of the equation, outsiders witnessing the public sins of others begin to speculate as to what might have been going on in the home life of that person. And while most rational people don't go as far as as giving the same amount of blame to the others connected to that person, they begin to wonder, maybe there's something wrong with the character of all those who are connected to the one who committed such a public act. And that kind of thinking can even influence us as believers this morning, and it can cause us to have some questions and hesitations when we come to a passage like the one we've landed on here in Hebrews chapter 2. Because how can it be possible that the holiest being in existence, the eternal God, would ever want to associate with us as family? And even if we can accept that, that we're truly adopted by God and that he is committed to treating us as sons and daughters, we might be tempted to still have doubts as to how happy he is about that arrangement. How does God think about the fact that we who have sinned against him in such outlandish ways are now forever, eternally, his family? Our finite human impulse is to wonder if God's smiling face towards us is is simply a divine facade to keep us from seeing the true reality of how he feels about us on the inside that must certainly be disappointment or even shame. And the more we mature in our faith, uh, the closer we grow to Christ in holiness, the more we see our sin for what it really is, we come to grasp just the the true ugliness of it. it, it can begin to rob our assurance and our joy to think, how could God ever really love me or want me to be with him forever? 
But this morning, as we open the text of Scripture again, we will stand in awe of the goodness of our God. And we will see that he has not only chosen to adopt those who are in Christ as his sons and daughters, but we will see his heart in that. We will see the way he feels and thinks about that reality. We are in the book of Hebrews, the theme of which is the superiority of Christ. We've been looking at that from the very first verse. And specifically since verse 5 of chapter 1, we've been in this lengthy section in which we see that Jesus, as God's divine Son, is undeniably superior to the angels. You'll see again the nine proofs that the author of Hebrews has given us. We are focusing on proof number nine, Jesus is the better Adam. He became a man in his humiliation. He was exalted to the highest place because of his ultimate substitution for our sin. The text that we come to again this morning is Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 10 down through verse 13. Let's read that text together. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. What we saw in verse 10 was what we're calling the declaration. The declaration that Christ's suffering was fitting, that it was absolutely right and fitting with God the Father's character to bring many sons to glory through the suffering of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And now we're in this long list of reasons. Why? Why was it fitting? And the first reason that we have seen together is in verses 11 to 13, the fact that we are a spiritual family. We are a spiritual family. We looked at the first implication of that fact last week in verse 11, that God is our Father. The first reason that we know we're a spiritual family is because God is our Father. We saw that Jesus Christ is our sanctifier, and we as believers are referred to as the sanctified. It is Jesus who has committed himself to our personal holiness. He is our sanctifier in the sense of positional sanctification. He has set us apart as holy. And he is our sanctification in the sense of progressive sanctification. He is daily, continually making us holy, if you're in Christ this morning. But after explaining that wonderful truth, the author astonished us by saying that both the sanctifier and the sanctified have one Father. We, as God's people, share the heavenly Father with the Son. Now, he, as we said, has a unique relationship with the Father. He's the only begotten Son, he himself being fully God, but we are true adopted sons and daughters of the King in Christ. 
This is one of the reasons why it was fitting for the Father to save us through the suffering of the only begotten Son. Because from eternity past, he has set his love on his people and said, They too are my adopted sons and daughters and sent the only begotten to bring us to himself. But that's not the only familial relationship that we're going to see in this passage. Because the author now turns to a second implication and a second familial relationship that we have with the Godhead. We have God the Father as our Father, and we have Christ the Son, now we see, as our brother. This is implication number two of the fact that we're a spiritual family. Christ is our brother, verses 12 to 13. Look back at verse 12 uh, again, actually, middle of verse 11. For which reason? For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason, the text begins. Now, this points back to the primary point we left off with last week, that we are sons of the Father. Because of that reality, because we are adopted sons and daughters of the King, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Now the pronoun, he, must refer to the one who sanctifies. That is Jesus Christ. So when he says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, he's saying Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call his people, the redeemed, brothers, brothers and sisters. But notice the interesting word choice here. He says specifically, he is not ashamed Now, if the only point that the author wanted to make is that we are brothers and sisters of Christ, then certainly he could have just said, for which reason we are his brothers. He could have just made a statement. But that's not what he does. Because he wants to emphasize something more. He doesn't just want us to know that we are brothers and sisters of Christ. He wants us to know how Jesus Christ thinks and feels about the fact that we are brothers and sisters of Christ. And how does he feel about that? He is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, sometimes when we come across a familiar word, like the word ashamed, I think it's helpful just to give a definition of the word because that definition sort of rekindles in our mind the full meaning of what's being said. I'm going to give you the definition of the the Greek word that's translated into English as ashamed. Here's the definition. It is to experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. To experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status. So what the author is saying to us in Hebrews then is that when Jesus Christ calls us brothers and sisters, he feels no painful feeling or sense of loss of status to do so. Think about the magnificence of that statement. If that statement doesn't strike you as astounding, it can only mean that you have not yet fully grasped the true reality of your condition before Christ. I want you to listen to some of the statements in Scripture that describe who every person is apart from Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. 
Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How about 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's how we were. We were enemies when God reconciled us. Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, for all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The best things that we did before Christ, he says, are like a filthy rag. Finally, Romans 3, 9 to 18. What then? Are we better than they? That is, Jews over Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it's written... There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I've not read all of those passages to sort of overshadow you with this load of guilt and shame, but simply to remind you and to remind myself of the reality of our true condition as those who are apart from Christ. Before you were in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be honest, if you are apart from Jesus Christ today, this is who the Bible says we are. We are not basically good people that just need some moral tweaking. In light of the majestic, eternal, perfect holiness of God, the truth is we have no business being associated with him. No family in human history has ever had a black sheep that deserved to be forgotten and shunned more than we deserve to be forgotten, shunned, and punished by God. And yet what does the author of Hebrews say? He is not ashamed. Wow. Just let that wash over you like a flood. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. If you're in Christ this morning, he calls you brother or sister, and he does it with joy and without hesitation. This is made even more astonishing when we understand from the New Testament how it is that Jesus said a, a true a brother or, or family member of his could be distinguished from one who is not. You may remember a scene from the life of our Lord where he's teaching a group of people, and as he's teaching, his, his mother and his brothers come to, to basically to take him, to talk with him. Jesus sees that opportunity to teach us a spiritual lesson about those who he says are his true spiritual family members. This is from Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 34. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was standing around him, and they said to him, 
Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus looks around at his disciples gathered around him, listening to his teaching, seeking to obey his words, and says, These are my true family members. Notice again the connection to the Father here. They're doing the will of God the Father, and therefore they are his family because the Father is his Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and therefore those who love to do the will of the Father are his brothers. They share the same Father. Now, it's important to understand Jesus is not teaching a salvation by works. He's not saying that those who, who are good enough, those who, who outwardly display obedience in their own strength, those are my true children. What he's saying is those who are saved by grace through faith, those whom I have redeemed, I will transform and they will obey the Father as I have obeyed the Father, not in perfection but in direction, and by that obedience you will know they are mine. But as we've already seen in this same passage Jesus can speak of the obedience of his spiritual family members because it is he who will sanctify them. It is he who will guarantee that those who are his are brought safely home to glory and are made perfectly holy. It will be his work. He knows full well that in and of themselves they are not obedient to the Father, but in fact are defined by disobedience and rebellion. But he also knows that it is he who will pay the price for their sin that they may not only be forgiven, but transformed into real holiness. And it's here that we begin to put the pieces together that explain how it is that the author can say that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He delights in redeeming those who deserve his wrath and then transforming them into what they need to be, what they must be, to be with him forever. You see, it's the sinful world that attaches shame to a person who chooses to associate with someone clearly lower in status than themselves. But this is not the way of God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. The religious leaders and other enemies of Jesus were constantly trying to shame him for his association with the lowly. But the irony, of course, of that is that in doing so, Jesus actually brought glory to himself And the shame came to these religious leaders. Think of it this way. Picture a a middle-aged man living in a vast kingdom whose personal life has been ravaged and ripped to shreds as a result of some drug addiction. He's lost his home, he's lost his family, his job, his reputation, and any hope of a brighter future. He now finds himself spending his days and nights underneath a bridge, His hair is overgrown, matted, unkept. His clothing is tattered and torn. He smells so bad that even his homeless associates won't stand near him. One day, as he's cuddled up under this bridge in the corner, he senses around him a great commotion. He looks and he sees that a crowd is gathering and and lining the streets around his bridge. 
It's a scene of joy. There's a sense of excited anticipation in the air. The crowd has come to see something. And so this homeless man shakes his head to clear whatever cobwebs are there from the night before and stumbles over to see what's happening. The crowd happily parts from him. No one wants to touch him or even look at him. And when he's finally able to make it to the street, he looks down the street only to see a, a caravan of vehicles processing towards him, all of them expensive, high-end vehicles. And on the side of the passenger door, they bear a familiar symbol, the royal crest. At the same time, he hears the excited whispers of the crowd around him saying, it's the prince, we're going to see the prince. Embarrassed of his appearance and current condition, he tries to slink back behind the crowd, hoping to be unseen, but as he does, he notices that the caravan has stopped. And upon turning around to see what has happened, none other than the prince himself has gotten out of his vehicle and he's standing there in the street and it looks as if he's staring directly at this homeless man. The quiet crowd is full of anticipation, wanting to hear the words of the prince. And to everyone's dismay, he reaches out his hand to this homeless man and says, There you are. I've come for you. My father sent me to rescue you. Come, let me take you home. He invites this stinky, homeless, despised individual to come and to join him in the car. And after what seems like an eternity of astonishment, the homeless man notices his feet are moving towards the car. The prince takes him back to the palace, orders that he be cleaned up, haircut, beard shaven, clothed in royal robes, and given a seat in the royal court. And beginning that very day, he treats him as if he were his own blood brother. Later, the people see the astonishing transformation of this once homeless man, now turned adopted prince, and some become indignant that this worthless man has received such a high honor. And so they ask the prince, are you not ashamed to associate with this worthless man? To which the prince replies, he is not who he was, and even now he is not yet who he will be. This is how Christ, our sanctifier, looks at us through the lens of his marvelous grace. Dear Christian, when he looks at you, he does not see you as you were, but as you are now, clothed in his righteousness, and as he will make you to be when he brings you to himself in glory. His association with us as brothers does not bring him shame, but utmost glory. It magnifies his grace to astonishing degrees that no man or angel has ever imagined. Even though we were powerless to become what we must be to enjoy his presence forever, he will see to it that we are made fully and completely holy, transformed, so that we will share eternity with him forever. He's already begun that process in, in our progressive sanctification, and we can have confidence that he will see it through to our final glorification. He is not ashamed to call us brothers because of his work, we can say we are not who we were. And even now, we are not yet who we will be. 
as humbling as that is to grasp the reality that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, even more humbling still is the fact that far too often we allow the fear of man to cause us to be ashamed of him. How many times have we remained silent when we should have glorified Christ? How many times have we failed to share the gospel when the doors of evangelism were blown wide open for us? How many times have we said half as much as we should have said? Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer this morning as we dwell on the fact that Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters that we will be emboldened to never again shrink in shame to associate ourselves with him. And before we move on, it's important for us also to recognize one further implication from this text that's staring us in the face because the recipient of this verb is not singular but plural. It refers not to an individual but to a group. The text says that Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren, plural. While that certainly applies to each Christian individually, it also applies collectively to every Christian who ever has lived and ever will live, every Christian sitting in this room and beyond. And that fact should deeply impact our unity. It should impact our fellowship together in this local church. If Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be associated with every other Christian in this room, then may we never be ashamed to associate with any other Christian in this room. If Jesus Christ, who is perfectly holy, eternally God, is able to see each one of us through the lens of his grace and eternal plan of redemption, how can we not adopt the same perspective when we look at one another? Listen, not one member of this church has yet reached perfect spiritual maturity. And what that means is that there will be times that relationships within the local church are difficult. It will mean that we will sin against one another. It will mean that there are times that things are said or done that demand persistent patience and grace for one another. How do we do that? How in the world do we demonstrate that kind of patience and grace? As those who are, yes, redeemed, but yet still sinners, how do we live in real, intimate fellowship with one another and yet maintain real, lasting unity in our local body? We do it by choosing to see one another through the same lens that Christ sees us. When you're struggling in this church to bear with the weaknesses of other believers, you must determine to think of them in the way that Christ thinks of you and say, like me, they are not who they were. And even now, they are not yet who they will be. If you're in Christ, you believe this for yourself. Are you willing to believe it for every other believer in our church? That doesn't mean there are not legitimate times when we must lovingly, humbly confront one another over a, a pattern of rebellion or sin. But it does mean that we must be quick and eager to bear with the daily weaknesses of one another and willing to cover the small, petty sins of others against us with grace and love. Our sanctifier is not ashamed to call us brothers. May we never be ashamed to call him our brother or any other brother for whom he has died. 
But as amazing as this truth is, the author goes on. He continues because he wants us to know that this is not some new concept of the, of the son to, to think of us as brothers. But in fact, this has been in the heart of God all along. In fact, this is not even a New Testament reality only. We see it in the Old Testament. The, 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 the scriptures that the author of Hebrews has, he now puts, puts his effort to help us understand there are texts in the Old Testament scriptures that testify to what he has just said. And so we're going to see three Old Testament passages that prove that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to identify with us as brothers. Now, as we prepare ourselves to dive into these Old Testament references, let me just remind us that as the author quotes each of these, he has the, the context of that passage in mind, the original context of that passage in mind. He is not simply cherry-picking and ripping verses out of their context to make his own points. He's being very careful with the scriptures. But in order for us to understand how he's using them, for each of these passages, I've got to make sure we understand the context well enough to get the point. So for each of these passages, I'm going to first talk about the, the, the story or the history behind that passage, and then we will look at how it connects with, with the point here in Hebrews. But the first Old Testament passage that is quoted here is one of the Messianic Psalms, one of the Psalms that prophesies the Messiah, and it's from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is a famous psalm that's almost universally accepted to be a prophecy of the Messiah because it deals with the Messiah's suffering on the cross. In fact, the very words of Christ are here in Psalm 22 on the cross. I'm going to just show you a, a sampling of some of the things that are prophesied about the suffering of Christ in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 6 to 8, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. And then Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Clearly, very pointed prophecies that were fulfilled in the cross of Christ from Psalm 22. But a lesser known portion of this psalm is what happens at the end of the psalm. Most people, when they think of Psalm 22, they think of the Messiah's suffering, and rightly so. But in verse 22, the whole psalm turns on its head. And it turns from discussing his suffering to the glorious exaltation of the Son. The Messiah would rise again. He would be exalted. This is Psalm 22, verse 22 to 40, 24. And verse 22 is the verse that's quoted in Hebrews. It says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised, nor, abhor, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. 
In verse 22, the psalmist turns to the victory of the suffering servant, and he is giving glory now. The, the Messiah is the one speaking in these verses, giving glory to God the Father for his deliverance from this suffering, which we know to be through the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Now that brings us to the actual quote in Hebrews. That's the context. Now look at verse 12 of Hebrews. This is the first quote. Verse 12, saying, so he's not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He's drawing our attention to the fact that when the Messiah is exalted there in Psalm 22, after his suffering, he bursts into praise. And it's this beautiful scene in which the, the Messiah is singing to the redeemed. It's as if he's the worship leader leading the redeemed to sing the magnificence of God. And he calls them brethren. He refers to that group of redeemed believers as brothers. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So even here in the Psalms, hundreds of years before the Messiah's suffering, he anticipates not only his resurrection and his exaltation, but the fact that he will proclaim in the assembly of the redeemed the glory of God. And even then, he thought of them as my brethren. What a picture. In one sense, every time we sing Christ is with us. He inhabits our praise in the sense that the Holy Spirit indwells each of his people. And Jesus, of course, is God. He's omnipresent. But this text tells us that there's coming a day in which we will hear the literal voice of Jesus Christ singing the glories of God the Father, if you will, leading us in worship of the Father. What a day that will be. But that's not all. The author has two further passages in the Old Testament to help prove the point that this has always been in the mind of God to think of us in this familial relationship. And these next two passages are both found in Isaiah chapter 8. And in order to understand this, I have to give quite a bit of background, not too, techni not too technical, but enough for us to understand because he makes some powerful points that you completely miss if you just read the words on the page without understanding the background. Now, there are several passages in the, the prophecy of Isaiah that refer to the Messiah. But perhaps the most famous messianic section is contained in chapter 7 to 9. You remember in chapter 7, we have the virgin birth is prophesied. In chapter 9, we have all of those names of the Messiah. He will be mighty God, right? Uh, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 7 to 9. That whole section is very messianic and looking forward to the Messiah coming. In fact, the theme of, the, of, of Isaiah as a book is salvation. That's the theme. But in order to proclaim the future salvation of God's people, Isaiah first has to tell them that judgment is coming. Judgment is on the way. In fact, by God's inspiration, listen to this, Isaiah names the nations by name before it happens that will come and overthrow the Israelites as a tool of judgment in the hands of God. The Assyrians, Isaiah says, will come and overthrow the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and the Babylonians will come and overthrow the southern two kingdoms that remain, which happened later. But both of those things ultimately did happen. 
But in the midst of revealing that God's about to judge his people by handing them over to these foreign nations because of their sin, he also proclaims salvation for a righteous remnant. God is going to bring a righteous remnant of Jews who are true believers in Yahweh back into the land one day. They will not be scattered forever, but he's going to bring them back. And not only that, but he is eventually going to set up on the throne the Messiah, the one, the son of David, who will rule his people forever. And so that's why we say the theme of Isaiah is salvation. Because yes, he declares judgment but he also declares future glorious redemption. Sadly, the vast majority of the people who heard Isaiah's prophecies rejected him and his words. And so in response to the hard-hearted rebellion of the people, in response to his prophecies, Isaiah says this, and this is where our quotes come from in Hebrews. This is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Isaiah says, "'Bind up the testimony.'" Seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look, even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. In summary, what he's saying in these verses Isaiah is telling his disciples, the few people who do believe his words, he says, take the prophecies that I've given and written down and bind them up. Save them for later so that when it happens, when these come true, the righteous remnant will see that God said it beforehand and they will believe and be saved and come back to the land. That's basically the idea. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among his disciples. In the meantime, as he waits... He's going to patiently wait on the Lord to fulfill his promises and prophecies. That's what he says in 17. I will wait for the Lord who's currently hiding his face from Jacob. I will even look eagerly to him. He says, I believe what God has said. I will trust him and I will wait even in the face of this rejection and persecution. Now, in addition to that, God had given Isaiah two children and and God told Isaiah what to name his two children. And both of their names were prophetic. In the names of his children, God had given a prophecy that was going to happen in their lifetime while the children were still young. And so their names were a prophecy of what was to come. That contemporary prophecy was fulfilled. The the children's names, those prophecies were fulfilled, which proved Isaiah was a true prophet. And so the future prophecies were also going to come to pass. That's going to come into play because he mentions his children here in just a moment. So literally, after those prophecies come true that that are, are born out in the children's names, Isaiah and his children are walking around as living proof of the faithfulness of God. You have the prophet and the two children who have the prophetic names that have already come to pass. It's a sign to all Israel. It's proof that Yahweh is faithful and his words are going to come to pass. Now, the author of Hebrews takes that and says something about that context pointed forward to Christ. That Isaiah and his children were a type of Christ. When we use that word type, it means something happened historically that pointed forward to something else in the future. That's what happened here. Now with all of that background, which I promise you is important to understand this, we come to our second passage in Hebrews. The second quote, it's from Isaiah 8 Verse 17, 
He simply takes a portion of it and says, and again, I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in him. Here, the author of Hebrews looks back at Isaiah, and as Isaiah waited patiently for the Lord to bring those prophecies to pass, so the Messiah waited patiently. He was rejected and despised by men. They didn't believe who he was. They didn't believe his words, and he waited patiently on the Lord. In so doing, we see the humanity of Christ and that Jesus actually acted as a son to the Father. And so he identified with us in his humanity and in depending on the Father. That's the idea here. It's, it's a proof of his identification with us. He trusted in the Father, just as we must trust in the Father as we await the future promises of God to be fulfilled. Now, there's one third quote that he also pulls from Isaiah, the very next verse. This is passage number three, Isaiah 8, verse 18. And here he simply says, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now, in the original context of this verse, as I told you, Isaiah had these two children with prophetic names, and so they stood as witnesses to the Israelites. As the Israelites hardened their hearts and would not believe God, there was Isaiah and his two children as proof that God's words were true and the future prophecies would come to pass. Here in Hebrews, he's revealing yet again that it's always been the plan of the Son of God to identify with us, the redeemed, as his own family. The gospel has done its work in our hearts. It is transforming us so that we are not who we used to be and we're being more and more conformed into his image. In this way, Jesus, through his resurrection and exaltation, plays the role of of Isaiah. He is a witness of the truth of God's words, the truth of the gospel, and the future prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And we, in a way, as his children who have been redeemed and transformed, just like the children of Isaiah, are witnesses to the world that the gospel is real. It's transformed us. We're no longer dead in sin, but made new. And so just as Isaiah and his kids were a living witness to the truthfulness of God's word, Jesus Christ and his resurrection and exaltation, and we, his transformed people, are a witness to a dying world that the gospel is real and Jesus is coming again. That's the idea here. He identifies with us in our humanity and dependence upon the Father, and he identifies with us in the sense that he calls us his children here, this familial relationship. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here because I dealt with this last week, but I, I want to just mention the point of why does he say here, the children whom God has given me. Um, he's referring to the, again to this idea that I mentioned last week that all believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. We see this, I'll just read one passage in John 17, verse 22 to 24. This is Jesus speaking. The glory which you, speaking to God the Father, have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. For I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you've given me, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. 
we, as God's redeemed, are a gift from the Father to the Son. And we see a hint of that even in this language, this Old Testament language pulled from Isaiah chapter 8. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now we understand. We've come full circle discussing this first reason as to why it was fitting for the Father to redeem us through the suffering of the Son. It's because we are a spiritual family. We have God as our Father. We have Christ as our brother. And this has been the eternal plan of God. Eternity past, Old Testament, New Testament, eternity future. This is God's plan of redemption. But it's crucial that we understand that the vast majority of the Jews that heard Isaiah's message hardened their hearts in rebellion and were swept away in judgment by God. In the same way, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that you sit even now surrounded by an ocean of proof concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. The chief witness of the validity of the gospel is Jesus himself. You will not find his body in some tomb outside of Jerusalem. He is not there. He is risen and exalted to the right hand of the Father. And if you struggle to believe that, understand that to your right and left sit people who were once dead in their sin, rebels and enemies of God, who now love God and have been transformed. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, they heard the gospel call that Jesus Christ, who was God from eternity past, took on human flesh. He lived a perfect human life. And then he offered that life as a sacrifice unto God to pay for the sins of his people and then rose again victorious on the third third day. And the Bible says that anyone who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope of salvation, they will be eternally rescued and saved. And then they will be his sons and daughters forever. The message of the gospel that has radically changed the lives of so many people in this room is now extended to you. Do not harden your heart as those Israelites did in the days of Isaiah and do not harden your heart as so many have done against the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. Humble yourself in repentance today. Come to Jesus Christ in faith, not trusting in your works or your own righteousness, but in him alone and you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what we rejoice in as Christ our sanctifier our brother, and God, our Father. But as we close our time, for those of you who are here and have already come to know the, the gracious salvation of Christ, let me encourage you just to apply this text in a couple of very specific ways. Number one, rejoice in your union with Christ. Rejoice in your union with Christ. If you struggle this morning with wondering if the Father and the Son are hiding secret disgust towards you behind a smiling face, I hope you can now see that nothing could be further from the truth. The Father truly loves us. The Son is not ashamed to call us brothers. In fact, it brings him great delight and unfathomable glory to do so. His is a love born out of who he is by nature. It's an expression of his own grace, his own mercy, his patience, his goodness, his kindness. Trust the grace, mercy, and love of Christ 
for you this morning if you're in Christ. And be motivated by it to live as an unashamed son or daughter of the king. Unashamed of, of Christ, unashamed of his people. Live for his glory and may that propel you and hold you as he holds you in his love. Proclaim him to anyone who will listen and do it with joy. And when in your striving to serve him, you fail yet again, remember to praise him still. Because though sin still remains a daily battle, praise God, you are not who you were. And even now, you're not yet who you will be. Secondly, rejoice in our union with one another. Rejoice in our union with one another. As I said earlier, these truths should radically alter the intimacy of our fellowship and the commitment of our, our, to our unity in Christ. We are those who daily receive wave after wave of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we neglect to offer that same grace to one another? I pray that our fellowship as a church would be strengthened because of the truths that we learned today. But in addition to that, this passage should affect the way that we think about, talk about, and act towards every true believer we encounter. The longer we sit under deep Bible teaching, the more theology we learn and the more we progress in our faith, we can unfortunately begin to look down on those who attend a different church with an air of superiority. I hope you love this church. I hope North Lake Bible Church is a blessing to you today and for the rest of your life. But may we resist the temptation of the Elijah complex, the temptation to think that, oh, woe is, woe is us, we're the only ones left. All others have fallen away. No, friend. Christ said that he will build his church, and he is redeeming many brothers from every corner of the globe, bringing them to himself. The truth is you will no doubt meet other Christians with whom you unfortunately cannot worship in the same local church because of legitimate theological differences. But if they are truly in Christ, never treat them as anything less than a brother or sister in Christ. Love them, pray for them. As you have opportunity, humbly and patiently come alongside with the truth so that they may be more clearly instructed in the scriptures, but always and only as a brother or sister. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. May we never be ashamed of him, and may we never be ashamed of a single one bought by his precious blood. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. That is our plea. We're overwhelmed that you, the perfect Holy One, would not only suffer and die for us to save us from our sins. As we look at our sins, it begins to make much more sense as to why you would have to die for us, but the thought of wanting to live with us, of calling us sons and daughters, of adopting us into your family, of Christ calling us brothers, this is overwhelming. It's far beyond any grace or love that we've ever imagined. Thank you. Thank you for so patiently, graciously, persistently loving us. God, may we demonstrate the same love and appreciation towards you. And God, may it make our fellowship sweet. Help our love for one another to have the aroma of Christ. 
the aroma of the gospel built on patience, love, grace, as we extend the love to others that you've extended to us. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.